This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to day four of the AIDC 2020 conference. Um, before we start, I'm just going to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Boon and the Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, um, where we hold our conference and pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, so today we're here for a stellar lineup for Niche to Broad, Big to Lean, Concepts of Scale in Factual. Um, and before um, the panel gets started, I just want to introduce Sarah Thornton, who's Head of Popular Factual at... Network 10, um, and Sarah's behind such big productions as One Born Every Minute, The Project, and Body Hack. So um, before, yeah, so I'd like to hand over to Sarah now, and she's going to introduce the panel and take it from here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on today. Um, so, uh, it's a slightly nebulous term scale, and as we've moved through, um, as we've moved through talking about what this session actually means, we've realised just how amorphous it is. Um, and so, I think today's session is more of a dialogue um, to try and get a handle on that, what it actually means to the development and production process um, so that there's actually something that we can kind of get a grip on. Um, and I think there are no better people um, to help me nut it out than um, the three panellists we have today. To my right, Jocelyn Little is the founder and executive producer at Beach House Pictures. They're Asia's largest indie and have a huge slate of um, productions from kids to factual and even entertainment formats like MasterChef. Um, Debbie Cool is executive producer at Endemol Shine Australia. Uh, across her career, she's been um, had oversight of um, shows like Gruen, but more recently has worked on One Born Every Minute and Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds. Um, and then Ben Ulm is Head of Factual and Reality at ITV Studios and has a slate um, that is extraordinarily diverse and, and ranges from Keeping Australia Alive through to I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. So I think um, some really uh, different um, credits um, that should help us kind of look at the breadth of a term that is, you know, like broad and confusing and annoying often. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I guess we'll start by sort of what scale means to each of you and, and what your thought process has been in coming to this session. Um, ben, should we start with you? Um, well, I think you know, for probably 10 producers out of 10 and certainly broadcasters, you would think of scale, you think of size, production size as much as anything else. And, um, and I think if you're pitching scale to a broadcaster, I think that, that's inferred. But I think part of this discussion is that actually show there's, act, you know, scale could be many other things. So I think, you know, um, scale in terms of keeping Australia alive, um, we shot an entire seven-part observational series in a single day in 24 hours, 50, 80 cameras around Australia, getting a snapshot of our health system in the day. And that looks like scale. It's an ambitious idea production-wise. But if you then took that day and you rolled all of those camera days end-to-end, -end, 
it actually looks like a much more conventional documentary series. If you took those 50 to 80 crews who shot for 24 hours and you roll that out over a three-month period, that's a conventional observational series. So scale was the ambition of doing, um, doing something in a single day. Um, Steve Bibbs in the audience, you know, we, we rode that very closely and it was, uh, it was uh, you know, a tricky road, but I won't get into too much detail about that. But scale it can also be about um, um, how the audience greets your story. And that's just a really basic, wow, how do they do that? And whoa, they must have gone a long way to do that. And scale could be the time frame of shooting, it could be the production look of it, it could just be a beautifully framed shot. So, you know, yes, it's a, an amorphous term, um, but there's two things. One is how you pitch it and deliver on what that expectation is. Mm. And, and it could be scale of the imagination as much as scale as the number of cameras. And the other is the audience watching it and going, wow, that must have been really hard. Okay. I think when we say scale, we always assume it's big scale, but you can have a small scale or a big scale. Um, I think networks, when they talk scale, they want something to feel like it's big. And, it's, and to what Ben said, it comes back to what you want the viewer to experience when they watch your show. So if you want them to feel like, wow, this is amazing, uh, you've got to work your production model out to give them that. And, and, and it's not always lots of cameras. You know, a show I did years ago called Country Town Rescue, that was large scale because we took a whole town on board. We convinced a whole town to be invested in um, rescuing the town. Yeah. So that was the large scale of that. It wasn't an expensive show to make, although we filmed it over 12 months. Um, so it was a long scale. But for the viewer, that's like, wow, they've got a whole town on board. So there's big scale in that. Whereas One Born Every Minute uh, was large scale, as far as technically speaking. There were you know 64 rig cameras, uh, 5,000 metres or kilometres, I don't know what the tech told me, of, of cable basically to set that up. So that was a massive um, undertaking. So that was large scale from a technical point of view. Did the viewer feel it was large scale? The viewer felt, I think, that they were, um, they were had this unique opportunity to see into someone's world that you wouldn't normally see into. So that was the scale attached to that project, I think. Jocelyn, you obviously um, work with a very diverse range of um, commissioners and broadcasters. Um, what would you say, you know, is there a kind of common theme when it comes to scale or does it mean something different to everyone? Um, I think um, we kind of see it in a couple of different ways. One is, um, you know, everyone assumes scale means big budget, but I think what we're finding now is really, especially when you say you're working with some of the international players, it's about what's the big, how the way to reach the biggest audience. Mm. You know, so scale could be a best-in-class idea, which doesn't actually cost a lot of money, but for some reason it just taps into the zeitgeist and reaches a very big audience. Um, the other way to also look at it, uh, we're finding more and more, is how do they, you create scale um, from and, and sort of more supersize your, so, supersize your audience by maybe creating franchises. So you're stretching your money as far as possible and you're, you're creating an environment where an audience is coming to your channel because they like one particular genre or they like uh, one particular set of talent and how do you stretch that as far as possible? Speaking of franchises, <laughs> um, I think we'll throw to the first clip. It's, um, it's a discovery uh, show called First Man Out and we'll, we'll watch the clip and then unpack it a little bit. Something big. Is that crop? Did you see that? Yeah. 
clearly the water is full of crocodiles. This is exactly where the crocs will be. I don't know what I can do to scare them. I'm off. Man has always battled nature in a bid to conquer it. I'm explorer Ed Stafford, and I've put myself through extreme tests of endurance and isolation to become a survival expert. But surviving on my own, in the middle of nowhere, with just a camera, has become well within my comfort zone. That was easy. I want to evolve, to take things a step further and find out what I'm really made of. So I've decided to go up against the world's toughest survivalists. Good luck, Ed. You'll need it. If you're not ready, you'll get taken out. A head-to-head -head race over miles of hostile terrain in a bid to prove to myself that I am top of my game. But this feels very, very dangerous now! It's not about beating my chest. It's about taking my skill set to the next level in the most authentic, realistic survival challenge possible. Next up, I'm facing former Royal Marine Aldo Kane in the croc-infested mangrove swamps of Borneo. I've come here to the jungle to beat Ed Stafford at his own game. Survival expert versus jungle expert. We'll see who comes out on top. Ah! Ed Stafford, you invited me to take you on head-to-head. That's a decision you're going to regret. So uh, this is obviously premium factual for a very specific audience. Um, what would you say is expected internationally from the kind of clients that you're producing for at the moment? Well, I think, I mean, the reason I kind of wanted to show this particular show is... Um, for us, what we're finding now more and more is people are trying to take traditional genres and elevate them. You know, how do we take, uh, you know, for this, in this particular instance, survival traditionally is, you know, a lone man on his own in one particular environment. Um, but we were set a challenge by Discovery, Victoria Noble and her team is, how do we take this and take it to the next level? So actually, as you can see, what we decided to do, and what was great on this, we actually had a very extensive development period, which I think made a big difference to yeah. how we approached the show. Um, and what we actually did was we took it and moved it more into the format space. So Ed's challenged himself, how does he prove he is, you know, for himself, one of the best survivalists in the world? And how we've done it is move it into that competition head-to-head um, sort of format. But at the same time for us, what we had to do was also maintain some of the things that the audience comes to these shows for, which is the, you know, the bushcraft, the survival techniques. So you have to kind of serve your fan, the fans of the genre, mm. but how do we take it to the next level and hopefully attract a bigger audience? Um, so I think that's kind of what we, we have achieved. And, and also at the same time, you know, what was a challenge with this show is we, we then took him to some of the remotest places in the world, as you can see, very you know, epic landscapes. Um, and for us as a crew, very challenging because often we were taking a big show into an environment where they've never made a show like this before. So that yes. had a whole set of issues with it. But it looks, <laughs> it looks lavish. Yes. Yeah. Because you have drones and you have good cameras, you know, yeah, you yeah. that sense of the multicam shoot. Yeah. If you did that that series 10 years ago, you'd need choppers and you'd need all sorts exactly. of, you know. Yeah. So it's scale, definitely, because of like extraordinary yeah. areas mm -hmm. and, and magnificent perspectives. Not, yeah. but, but not necessarily because of the budget. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I think it's interesting yeah. that it obviously feels very 
it, it ticks the boxes when you think about something that's got classic scale. Mm. But I just wanted to circle back because you sort of talked about the development process mm. being quite rigorous and um, I guess that often means that you can do things more effectively or cheaply. Um, were there some key decisions that you made across development, A, to sort of achieve scale in a cost-effective way, but also with the kind of thought of a franchise in mm. mind as well? Yeah, it, 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 I think, you know, we did because the intent is to make a lot of these series as returnable as possible. Mm. Um, and obviously Ed was already a very beloved uh, sort of character in this world. So it was more sort of, you know, taking, it, you know, him as a personality, not moving away from his personality, but putting him up against people from, you know, also different parts of the world. So yes. suddenly we have an American, we have a Aussie, you know, we have people, from, you know, so that can also why in the audience appeal. That's interesting. Yeah. And I guess that's um, it, that sort of plays into how you might think about content, not just for a network like Discovery, but also for streamers. Is that something, that kind of idea of international scope, something that you really consider at the outset? Yes, it is. Um, and it's interesting because, again, with the streamers, I think there is this perception that, oh, they, you know, it's, it's all very big budget. But in our experience, what we're finding is it's um, sometimes it is a very local story mm -hmm. and they have an approach which maybe they call it local to global. So you're trying to take a local story or maybe a smaller idea idea and uh, sort of craft it in such a way that it would appeal to a larger audience, which I think, you know, often it's, it's, it's things we're all used to. It's great access, it's great characters, you know, it's those universal themes that, you know, we've always used in storytelling, but it's just always having that perception and, and thinking from the beginning, how do we take this idea and, and have it so someone, you know, UK or America would actually want to watch it. Mm. Um, Deb, uh Back down to a, a sort of a smaller storytelling, but on a grand scale. Yep. One born every minute you mentioned earlier. The idea that actually using using scale to actually narrow down on a on a story. Yes. Um, how useful would you say something like the fixed rig or a large multicam shoot is to tell something that's so intimate? Uh, it's it's key, I think, because um, without the presence of people in a room, the participants tend to forget that they're being filmed. Um, so they're completely stripped down of any um, awkwardness. You know, they just do what they what they would normally do without us there. The key, the key though, in capturing that intimacy is really, it all goes back to your technical setup. You've got to do your research. You've got to get the right, um, right sort of uh, help, I guess, the right guidance because you have to have, you have to spend the money on getting cameras that will get in, that will get close. You have to make sure you've got enough angles in the room to get um, to get the shots, so you've got to have enough cameras in the room um, and you've really got to invest in that. And, and people so often forget about sound. Mm -hmm. Your sound is just critical. If someone comes in in labour, oh, hang on one minute, I might just put a mic on you. So you've got to have all of those uh, bases covered to capture those moments. Um, and I think a lot of shows that have tried to do fixed rigs, some have done it you know, reasonably well, but a lot of them make the mistake of not investing in the right cameras and you're sitting there watching you going, far up, I just want to see closer. You know, so, so it's really, really respecting uh, the technical side of the process. Because us as creative people, we often forget about the technical side, but if you don't have that, you can't get the creative mm. right. You also bring in director's eye to the project too. Yes, absolutely. Which is, yeah, yeah. Which it is, it's drama, you know, and that's why... Definitely, you... yeah, absolutely. So you get a director in early. Yeah. Um, that was me on this because well, I'd been in well, director. I was just going to say... <laughs> but, yeah, but if that you're a former it. director, so, you know, those sorts of things, yeah. you know... 
They're really important. Yeah, absolutely. Let's return to the technical side, but first let's have a look at some of the human drama. This is a clip from One Born Every Minute. chosen a name, um, it's Nariella Jonasteen. It's my mum, my mum's, his auntie and my sister's name put together in the first one. And then Jonasteen is Morgan's nana, Jane. Jane. And then my mum's name, Justine, so Jonasteen. All the important girls in the baby's life. Yeah. myself I wouldn't cry again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's a beautiful example of how having the breadth of coverage has led you to something so intimate and actually so small and detailed. Um, there's a lot of focus on the prep and the cameras. Um, how important is the edit in a show like this? Uh, the edit's key, I guess, in all shows, but particularly in shows like this where you're dealing with so much footage. So we filmed... 24 hours a day for six weeks. Um, so we had an insane amount of footage every day. The big um, thing, the mm. whatever we recorded on, <laughs> went back to post. Um, but that went along with a whole lot of specific notes each day so that when we got into post, we didn't have, you know, six weeks' worth of um, rushes to try and work out where to start. So you have to start building building your stories and building your episodes as you're shooting them. You don't have to, you know, sign off on exactly what's in each episode, but you have to start. Otherwise, it's just 
so um, frightening. And it sounds like 64 cameras, oh my God, how do you deal with that? But if you, if you just break it down, we had uh, four um, birth rooms rigged, four, uh, three water birth rooms rigged, an operating theatre and all the hallways and IT rooms. So, you know, you would only ever be focusing on probably two to three storeys at once at any one time. So you could really narrow it down and focus on just those, those stories that were happening at once. Um, and those were the stories that you obviously were following into post. But what we first thought, we thought, how are we going to get people to say yes for us to film one of the most primal, intimate moments in their life? So basically, anyone who said yes, we filmed their births. And um, we found out, and we promised them that they'd get a birth video, whether it went to air or not. Um, we soon realised that so many people wanted to be on television having a baby. So we ended up having to cut like 60 birth videos <laughs> of the stories that we knew were never going to see the light of day. I think we only just finished them like just before Christmas. So next time we'd, go, we'd actually cast, you know, we'd cast for the people that we wanted to be on the show. Um, but we had no idea. You know, the UK Bible really stressed how hard it was to get people to, to say yes. So um, it, everyone wants to be famous, like, even if it's in that sort of a very um, intimate moment. So, yeah, that, that was a big learning to us. It's nice to hear Australians are so open about <laughs> yeah. the process, isn't it? So I guess to all of you, but, Ben, um, I think that it leads us to a bit of a conversation we've had already. Um, does scale always have to mean big budget? I mean, obviously, One Born Every Minute had a lot of resources poured into it. It wasn't a huge budget no. by any means. But does scale always have to mean a big, hefty budget, or can you achieve scale in other ways? No, I think, I think scale is always going to be um, what is desired by the audience and by the broadcaster. But as we've heard through the week about revenues being down, funding being down, we have to just be smarter at giving the sense of scale or, or delivering scale, like Jocelyn has there, with a more modest budget. And so it's about the approach to scale. Now, scale could be multi-camera, it could be drones. Um, scale could also be uh, um, the ambition of time frame. Um, Lillian in the audience here, one of the indie producers, she's she's been talking to me about a project shot over 20 years, you know, she, you know, so there's an archive there that she's activating and getting a counterpoint today. That's scale. If you go in and say, I have a project shot over over the lifetime or over a 20-year period, that's that's scale. So I think it's a, it's it's it, it's not a buzzword like you know noisy. It's going to be noisy. I think scale, you know, you you run the risk of disappointing your broadcaster if you promise scale and you deliver something which is a different interpretation, because scale normally means big, lavish. Um, so I think you've got to be very clear about what you're promising to do. But I think to, you know, I think, you know, you know Shine, ITV, Beach, you know, they're, they're large companies that can absorb, you know, development and, and a lot of elements that go into those big productions, like I'm a celebrity getting out of here. But I think that it doesn't mean that, that an independent producer like Lillian and others can't deliver on a project with scale. And, that, and later on we'll get on to archive, but there are, I think there are smart ways of traversing periods of time or geographical um, you know, challenges by shooting very cleverly. I, I mean, I would um, argue, and I don't know if you'd agree, that sometimes um, the, the intimacy of a project is what gives it scale, sometimes actually making things smaller and closer to the subject. I, I think I think that um, all factual comes down to capturing moments. Mm. And if you capture moments with a multi-cam shoot or 
in the, in the wild or the, the project that we've just delivered for SBS, which I think we're going to show a clip of, the challenge is always, well, you know, you, know, you, can, you can confect the moment, but, but, but moments of honesty and rawness, as you mm. say, and that's, that is scale. You know, how do, I, how do I penetrate that world that no one else has got a, you know, privileged access to and get that moment of honesty when they forget that the cameras are there and you, and you capture a, a moment? So yes, I agree, I agree with you. Intimacy can be scale if, the, if to get to that intimacy, we we as the, as as the television audience go, wow, how do they, you know, how do they do that, you know? Well, let's go to the clip and then we can unpack that a little bit more. So this is a clip from Who Gets to Stay in Australia for SBS. From this time forward, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people. Every three minutes, someone gains permanent residency in Australia. I feel Aussie. <laughs> but every year, more than 40,000 people are rejected. How can I go? I've got my wife, my kids. People are being removed from Australia who, in my opinion, should be allowed to stay. They come here for love. We are afraid that we might not be here for the wedding. For money. Who knows, I have 10 restaurants before I get my tribunal date. For family. These people haven't met Kieran. He's just a number. For safety. I'm expecting the Australian government would look after me as a stateless person. Our immigration laws are among the toughest in the world. The law change every three or four months, five months. Killing with a piece of paper is worse than killing by a bullet. The tribunal is now in session. For close to a year, our cameras captured the moments that matter. The decision will be a matter of life and death. To the ones who want to call Australia home. We belong here. This is our home. In the fight of their lives. I just want to know what my chances are. The answer is, I don't know. I'm just giving you a call to let you know a decision came in today. In this episode... We need to address your 10-year overstay. I was shocked, um, but also really disappointed. Married in Australia, but will the law force them apart? I know he overstayed, but he didn't drain the criminal justice system or drain the health system. The thing is, he also didn't pay taxes. That's no. one thing that they will bring up. An American wife caught in no man's land. The message that it sends of, we don't want you if you're not perfect. A wife's desperate fight to prove her marriage is real. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence of a relationship here. I'm 35 now and I want to have a family. Absolutely, there are mental health consequences. And the moment she made a fateful decision. I know now what I want to do. It's hard to know that the news that you deliver has such a big impact. So, obviously, there's some extraordinary access there into people's lives. What was the production model that you put together in order to capture this on what I assume was probably not a huge budget? Yeah, so um, just bumping things down to um, Obstock, observational documentary, you know, the, the general thing if you're doing border security or you're doing, um, you know, Bondo Rescue, the way I look at it is if you could throw a net over a 
three-month period, mm. what would you see? What, 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 what stories would come in? What would resolve on the day and so on? This, this was entirely um, more difficult because the, the, you know, we're talking about immigration, we're talking about the process of applying for permanent residency and the appeal process beyond that. And it's a, it's a system lacking in transparency and so we couldn't throw that net over a three-month period or even a six-month period and we couldn't also commit to shooting for years and years and years because sometimes these cases take that period of time. So from the production model, um, a model where you crew up with a, you know, your full eng crew or two crews or three crews and sit and wait for things to happen, uh, it was just not s s supportable. It was just mm. would have been, so it had to be a, a nimble shooter-producer model where we had um, um, people in Sydney and in Melbourne and we also elected to, after doing a lot of development on the project, elected to arrive at our story at the appeal stage. Yeah. So if it's when we're filling out the very first application, it could be a year, I mean, the average wait for partners is two years. Uh, we would never be able to deliver the, the moments that I'm alluding to, the moments when they find out. At the appeal stage, we, we recognised that they'd been knocked back and going to appeal means that they felt it had a conviction about the strength of their case and the appeals frame, time frame is a little bit more manageable. Although if you look at the, on, on the appeals uh, website, uh, the AAT, your average wait times are about 500 days. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cruel, in my view, overly bureaucratic, slow burn. So the production model had to be um, access, of course, which is uh, we got via the lawyers, the advocates, mm -hmm. um, uh, and through them, through the clients, um, access to the appeals tribunal. But we modelled it on shooter producers. So, you know, yes, there's some downtime, but you can also craft and hone relationships and stories. Um, but that, one of those moments that you saw in that teaser, Nick McInerney shot it. It was a, I think, 5 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. He was heading home. He was, his wife had organised a dinner party and then the call came that there'd been a decision and the person hadn't been told yet. And he had to drop everything. He called me and I said, I'm really sorry, Nick, but you know what you have to do. And he had to drive for two hours to get to this location. We thought Channel 7 News was going to get there first. <laughs> And, he, and, you know, he's still recovering his marriage from that, that phone. Sorry, darling, I have to not come to dinner. But he got there and, and because of the relationship they built over a period of time, mm. he got a very honest moment. Um, so I think the starting point is, yeah, it's, it's the opposite of, of fixed rig. It's actually rather than an intense period of time, um, the, 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 the storytelling challenges are that it's, you know, in, in this particular topic, it's an administrative process. You fill yes. out a form and you wait and you wait, but the stakes are so high. I mean, quite literally, life and death stakes. Mm. And that to me was what drew me to the project is that, you know, how do I capture that moment and not tell stories in hindsight? Mm. So it's challenging. Yeah. It feels to me like technology is enabling us to scale down as well as scale up and in doing so opening up this kind of long form storytelling and stories that ordinarily we couldn't have told. Would you say that, you know, you were helped by, you know, the the advancement in cameras and... Yeah, I mean, that video. night that Nick went, you know, to the, drove those two hours, the entire production office of all ITV productions were ringing around trying to find a sound recordist. Mm. Friday night, you know, who, who was near Melbourne, you know, who could get there? And uh, we were all on the phone. I was on Facebook, you know, because, you know, we, we, as you say, sound is critical. Mm -hmm. And um, we found someone, but by that point, Nick was already there, already rolling, already radio mic'd, yeah. you know, the talent. 
So it was like, no, the intrusion of another person to come bumbling in with the only <laughs> yeah. So to, to your point, yes, you know, a really good shooter producer and also the, the, the gear is much, much more dynamic. But, you know, I think we'll all agree that the audience will forgive bad shooting, like a whip pan or a dramatic moment yeah. call. It's, it's sound is so key. Yeah. yeah. And you can't shortchange that. And two, that te technology is allowing us to do things on a small budget. Even though one bought every minute was large scale as far as how many cameras. If you, if you think how many camera operators and sound recorders we would need to be filming two births at once, what was going on in the, the, the IT room, which is, mm. you know, where they all congregate, you probably would have had to have 14 manned cameras, yeah. you know, 24 hours a day. It's a lot of you do, and you, you do the figures, <laughs> even if it was shooter producers, like it just, the figures don't work out. You, yeah. So fixed rig, even though it's a big setup, it is cheaper. And if you could actually shoot two series at once, <laughs> if the network would commission two series at once, it would actually work out much you cheaper. Okay. Yeah, you can amortise yeah. it. So, yeah. And I think also fixed rigs, I mean, people think fixed rigs has to be with, you know, the big companies. But again, the, the, you know, you can go a fixed rig light, you know. Mm. I, I did a tattoo show back in the day with an indie company and um, we just figured it out with like, you know, 12 well-positioned cameras, you know. It's not as sophisticated or as was mobile as yeah. getting the right cameras, but it, it doesn't have to mean massive capital investment. Yeah. You also, something I just thought I'd pick up on that you mentioned that I think is a strong theme in factual television globally but also in Australia, and that is the dedication of the crew and the people working on it. Um, and I think that often that's the thing that enables us to bring more to a project. Um, Jocelyn, I thought we might start with a clip of Wild City, but mm. that is a project knowing having spoken to you about it, that came from a real dedication of some of your production teams. So we'll show the clip Wild City and then talk about that for a bit. One degree north of the equator, there is a small island, a thriving tropical paradise. And from the roots of this jungle has sprung one of the fastest growing cities in the world. This is Singapore, one of the most densely populated countries on Earth. But even with 5.4 million people, there is a wild side. We will explore hidden worlds to discover the unseen treasures of Singapore and see how they have adapted to the human world. Deploying the latest filmmaking technology, we will uncover secrets and unexpected encounters. From bird's eye view to beneath the surface, in the light of day to the darkest corners. This is an island of rapid change, but the wild still exists. A home to an astonishing 40,000 species of animal and plant. But where is it hiding? In the wild city. So I actually love this because I think um, Natural history is normally uh, notoriously expensive. The, the, you're in the realms of blue chip. 
there's not really much room for other players. So um, it's my understanding that you delivered this on a much lower budget. A, a much lower budget. And yes. so <laughs> how how did you manage to deliver? And 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 is this the show that you sort of set about to make, or was it quite an amorphous process? Um, well, I think we start from the point of view. Obviously, we, what we've discovered, and we we're very lucky in Singapore, is we did have a wealth of material. I mean, in, incredibly, Singapore does have that. I mean, they mentioned there are 40,000 species of animal and plant, which actually apparently is more than, you know, sort of North America, when you put it down on our little island. So we were starting from a point of view where we, we knew there was a wealth of content, but, um, you know, we had a very low budget. We were up against the, the big boys in the sense of how to get the story out there and, and appeal to an audience which has very high expectations in this space. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we thought, okay, well, what's a good way to make this, you know, feel credible and reach the biggest audience possible? And that was starting with, you know, the icon in the space, which was David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. So we actually, from the beginning, approached him at the very beginning of the production. Okay. Um, and I this was seven, eight years ago, where we had to actually fax him to ask if he'd be willing to work on our little show in Singapore. And, and he liked the idea, um, but he wouldn't commit actually till he saw the script. And that was like a year later. So it was, you know, a little bit of a risk we were taking, but we believed in the idea. And what we had to do also, the other challenge in Singapore was, unlike a lot of um, species, which actually there's a lot of studies about and you understand a lot of behavior, in our context, there hadn't been anything done. So we were doing, um, we, we were lucky because it was on our doorstep, so we actually could do a lot of research, but we approached it in a very different way. We did a lot of crowdsourcing, actually. What we do is go and find communities where they were living adjacent to either the otters or the monkeys or whatever the species was, and get to know them, build their trust, and ask to spend time with them, see what they had observed. We also found that um, there was quite a lot of, um, you know, it, it, and this has grown over the years we've made the show. We've actually on to episode six now. It's a, a gift that keeps oh. on giving. Um, but um, And what's actually happened is be when the first episode came out, suddenly a lot of Facebook communities sprung up and, you know, people started taking a real interest in the creatures around them. So we've used that as a research tool as well. Um, and, and I think also what we had to do is obviously get into the field as soon as possible. So again, lucky because it's not that remote for us. So our team spent a long time in the field, small teams, young filmmakers. We weren't using the big, uh, you know, established cameramen. We were using a lot of guys. I think our main director was fresh out of uni, mm -hmm. but a huge passion. So she just spent, you know, weeks and weeks in the field, you know, trying to capture the behavior. Um, and then sort of, you know, on top of that, I think, um, you know, like, so we actually did capture a lot of footage, a lot of footage, um, but uh, lucky through the edit and just the process of working with, um, we actually brought on an EP who had worked on, on Blue Planet just to help us, you know, formulate the first episode and sort of train the team. So I think that made a big difference. Um, and also, like you mentioned earlier, technology played a, a great part in this. But we had to be very smart with it because we couldn't afford to bring in, say, the, the Phantom or the Starlight camera for, like, you know, six months. We could bring it for a week. Yeah, right. We can only afford that. So we had to be very targeted about how we use that and how we use sort of the expert experts in the field. And was scale a thing that you had in the back of your mind as you moved through both the development and production process? I think when we saw scale of this, it was about um, um, how do we make this feel international and premium yeah. on our low budget. That's how we saw scale in this sure. context. 
Yeah. And it obviously has paid off. Um, you were telling, I'll get you to tell me, you know, who has picked it up internationally? Well, I mean, what's been great is this was made for Channel News Asia, which is the, the local broadcaster in Singapore. But actually, um, in the last sort of years, it's been, I think, it's been picked up by Sky UK, BBC America, SBS here in Australia. Arte, so it's gone global, and um, which is great. And I, and I think Attenborough has played a, played a big part in that. You know, people, you know, like his voice; he's you yeah. know credible. Mm -hmm. But I think also what's great is you know the stories. It's surprising; people don't expect um, to have such great diversity and great animal behaviour stories within a city. Mm -hmm. so. I like what you say as well about being targeted about when you do spend mm -hmm. money. So spending it for a shorter amount of time, working out what those important moments are that you might want to capture. Um, Deb, uh, you've obviously recently produced Old People's Home for four-year-olds. Yep. Is that something that you were very conscious of as you were trying to make that feel premium? Absolutely, but we had to do it on, you know, a reasonably tight budget. So we, um, once again, used shooter producers. So um, we had six shooter producers and they captured all the all the activities in the, in the playroom. We had the camera's hidden behind bookcases on a couple of dollies. But then once, you know, if one of the old people went outside and wanted to get some grabs, they'd be quickly unclipping it, running out and doing the interviews themselves. So that nimbleness of having people... And, and they were so passionate about doing something. A lot of what we find when you do these sorts of shows that you're inundated with good people because uh, they're kind of a nice change to a lot of the reality shows that um, a lot of our um, camera guys and producers work on. So you really get to choose some great passionate people, you have to be prepared to train and nurture them to a degree because, um, you know, often with that passion comes inexperience. But yeah, absolutely, we, we and we saved the big guns. We had a DOP, obviously, um, for some of our beautiful shots of the old people in their homes, you know, setting up the depression, uh, some, uh, some GVs, some drone shots. But yeah, our probably DOP days in the whole seven weeks was probably no more than five or six days, I think. Great. That's interesting. So it gives it that, that sense of, wow, beautiful quality. Um, but also, looking, once again, going back to technical, the cameras that we used um, for our shooter producers were all FS7s. Mm. So, you know, you still got to have quality, yes. I think, because you can see it on screen now. Everyone's sitting at home with, you know, really big TVs in the room. Mm. You've got to, you can't, mm. you can't skip quality in your shoot. Let's take a look, and then we can talk about it some more. They like to go in the sand. Meh? They like to go in the sand. In the sand? Yeah. Now, I'd rather not, if you don't mind. Do you? No, because of my poor foot. I've got my good shoes on, too. Yes, yes. Eric, do you take your sh shoes off? Shoes no. and socks off and put them in the sandpit? I can't. What do you want? You want me to take my shoes and socks off? I'd, I'd fall down if I went down there. Oh, I better do it, I suppose. I better do it, eh? He's showing his body off. He's getting ready to strip and swim naked in the water. What are we going to do? Make a sandcastle. Well, I tell you, the only way I can do that is I'll, I'll come down there near the, and I'll sit on the rock there, and you'll you'll show me how to build a sandcastle. You be careful. Uh, I can still hold the other side. No, I You want I, me to go away? Yep. Okay, I'm going away. Yeah. I've been dumped. I can't get down the steps. Hope he doesn't fall. Excuse Don't trip me. Over the spade. No. Well done. 
If I fall... If I... I'm in trouble. Get it, yeah, and, then, and I can't save you. Don't worry. There's no way in the world I could make that down those <laughs> Got it. Oh. Oh. oh, God. He's the only one silly enough to do that sort of thing. Oh, dear. Oh, gosh. Big step, Eric. Whoa! 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 Eric made it. Give Eric a clap. <laughs> Give Eric a clap. Yeah, you're gonna make it. You're gonna build a sandcastle now. Uh, uh, I got the wizard. Okay. I mean, they were playing, and I just joined in with them. Now don't, don't knock it all away. We want to make it bigger, not smaller. They were just fiddling with sand, and I thought I can do better than that. And I could. <laughs> I think for me, um, this series qualifies as Factor with Scale for a lot of reasons. It obviously taps into the zeitgeist, it sets a national agenda, um, it's returnable, it has a kind of different way of working a production model. What would you say, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, obviously, and potential for things to go wrong. What were the lessons learned? <sighs> Well, firstly, I'll just talk a little bit about why I chose that clip to show that... So there's ten old people, most who hadn't been to the beach, you know, for five or ten years, uh, ten four-year-olds, um, a preschool teacher and water and a windy day. Um, on a big shoot, like a, you know, I don't know, a marriage at first sight or something like that, you'd have a video village, basically, and a video village is probably ten to 15000 a day. So we didn't have that sort of money, so there's... The camera crews, there were six guys standing in the water <laughs> shooting. Um, there were a couple of the producers between the producer and myself. We were kind of directing. Uh, we had a lifesaver there. But really, we had no idea what everyone was shooting. We just had to brief everyone first and really trust in our people that we were getting what we needed because um, you just can't spend that sort of money, you know, on those sorts of shows. Um, but what did we learn along the way? We learned the toilets are very important. <laughs> so, um, so we just get through uh, all the four-year-olds going to the toilet and then we just start mm -hmm. filming and then Eric go, I need to go to the toilet. Mm -hmm. And for an old person to go to the toilet, you think, you know, a couple of minutes, so 20 minutes later, uh, we'd still be waiting for Eric to come back to the toilet. Not necessarily Eric, sorry, Eric, if you ever see this, but just in, <laughs> in general. So we we knew it would be hard to capture a lot of... Um, a lot of our, you know, shoot time in a day, we'd lose a lot of time waiting, but we didn't realise how much time. And particularly when we went off on, like, that excursion, the first thing we had to find is, what about toilets? Where, what are we going to do for toilets? Can you get there on a walker? Um, and on the one of the shoots we did up at the maze at North Head, we only had uh, one port and I was holding the door while there was another old person there going, hurry up, Stuart! So coordinating toilets, it sounds silly, but it was um, a big thing to learn. The other thing... A lot of it we sort of already knew beforehand, but it's really important for everyone on the team to actually be not just good at their job, but someone who has empathy and who doesn't mind helping out. You know, the, the crew were always helping the old people up out of their chair um, or just talking to them when they were, you know, feeling unsure of what was going on. So, you know, don't ever underestimate how much time you lose when you're working with vulnerable groups like that. We'd be lucky to get to an hour and a half a day in the can, probably. Mm -hmm. 
I love what you've managed to do with the budget that you had on that show. And I think it's also fantastic that it managed to get such a huge audience here in Australia and such a great sign for Factual, really. Um, was there a moment that you knew it was going to be a hit? Yes. <laughs> uh, it was the moment when the children walked into the room for the first time. That was, we were all sitting in our little sort of broom closet, which was our control room. Uh, and I think we all had tears streaming down our face. We just... We went, wow, this is going to work, guys. Um, and then to that point, though, by the end of the second day, we thought, oh, God, everyone's getting better too quickly. How are we going to get <laughs> How are we going to get five steps out of that? But very quickly, you know, we had some of the old people say, oh, no, I'm sick of this now, and, and we had the, you know, the ups and downs. But, yeah, as soon as we saw that, that the first probably three minutes that, that in that first day, mm -hmm. we just went, wow, we've got gold here. Mm -hmm. Well, like, we just, you just knew we had gold. And, you know, we just had to make bring it all together in the right way. I love that yeah. in that clip, you didn't cut to the interview until right at the end. No. I love you stayed in the reality. You just stayed yeah. with it, stayed with it, stayed with it. We yeah. heard the... Yeah. And then there was a reason for cutting to him. He had a little funny look on his face. Yes. Like, you know, I've got so much t in so many TV content you see, just go to the last interview and it just mm. breaks the spell. It breaks the and spell. you created a great spell over that. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of a, a big format beat for us throughout the series was to stay in the moment because the yeah. moment's great. Yeah. yeah, and use the interviewer's thought track if need mm. be, but yeah, staying And cameramen home. who listen. Uh, that's the thing. And that's, actually, that is one thing, uh, it's hard sometimes, you know, there's a thing, are you better off with the DOP or a shooter-producer? When you've got a, an ENG crew, you've got a cameraman and you've got a sound recorders and you've got a producer. So each is doing their own task. And, and it's really, a good listening cameraman's a great thing, but they're not all good listening cameramen. Wherever you've got a shooter-producer, their job is to shoot and to listen. Mm. And they're coming from a producer's brain and they do listen. Like, one of the best moments we got on the series, we'd, we'd stop for lunch and, um, and the cameraman kept rolling because he could see in front of him that this little scene was playing out. Mm. You know, we couldn't see that with, you know, so much 21 people in the mm. room. Um, it, it was just unbelievable what they got. So, yes, they don't have probably the, the or not all of them have the honed skills of an ENG cameraman, but they, they do listen. A staffing is critical. I often think executive producers are the best recruiters mm -hmm. in the world. <laughs> um, obviously, the show has inspired um, quite a lot of talk about aged care in Australia, Anthony Albanese's basing his um, new strategy on it, which is amazing. I, I guess one of the things we talked about when we were planning this session was the, um, the idea of ambition and having a bit of a mission at the start of the development process. Um, are there any sort of, I mean, they're, they're, I can think of loads of examples, but there are examples that really resonate with you that you think had a really clear ambition from the beginning that have brought scale in that way? Well, I think generally speaking, there needs to be a purpose to everything you do. I think mm -hmm. um, the you know in olden days it was enough to go right. Let's just follow someone's life for a period of time and just see what happens. But I think that I think when, when you're pitching an idea and when a broadcaster is backing your idea, it's it's what is it, when is it, but the why is really important. What mm -hmm. you know now that that said. I think as observers recording moments, um, it's very, you know, you have to resist the urge for it to be a polemic or to start with your conclusions. And this is gonna have that effect. You've gotta be honest with your audience. And that was a challenge with immigration. I mean, I, I portrayed a little bit of bias in, in, in talking about that clip, but that was gleaned over a year and a half of, of working on the project. But 
the project itself, you know, these are first-person stories and their own stakes. Um, so, yes, I think having a purpose or a mission, yes, if you're devising a project, it does help, you know, we love the phrase social experiment, you know, mm. but the social experiment is, is going to be a what if, but it's going to be a what if for a reason. And it's either, if either it's sheeted in a fact, which is old people, you know, un, 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 unrelated to your series, I heard that people in old folks' homes get visited, I think, I think two out of three never get visited, you know. 40%. 40%? Don't ever have a visitor. That's a, that's a telling fact, yep. you know, and then that's what would probably be the basis of yeah, that yeah. series. Well, yep. What if you did that? But um, first contact, you know, a very small percentage of white Australians ever even meet an Indigenous person. So I think, yes, I think having a mission is important. I think having a purpose is important. But I think um, it's, it's uh, you know, you start the series with an unanswered question. You don't have to answer all the questions, but then at the end, if you've maybe learnt something as well as being moved, then you've, you've achieved something. So we, we set out to, I guess, achieve two things. Well, one overall was to shine a light on the issue of aged care, and that was helped by the Royal Commission into aged care happening at the same time, so it was already out there. Um, but we wanted to make everyday Australians think about how they look after the old people in their life, but we wanted the government to sit up and notice. Um, the government won't ever sit up and notice unless the public sits up and notices. So, you know, there were 2.5 million views on, um, on social media, the show rated 1.5 million, that was with all the consolidated. So if, and this is what Sue Kerr, one of the um, um, specialists on the show said, if they'd done a scientific paper and lobbied the government, it's much harder to get something to happen. But having a show that is the talk of the nation and that then filtering back to the government, that's how you get the government to make change. Mm. And that's what it did. We, we, we had no idea it would have that effect, but we did think that it would actually make them have to sort of scratch their heads a bit. And... So, Jocelyn, as a factual producer, is there a kind of moment where you in the development process where you would ask yourself about, well, what is the mission of this show? Like, how, how much of that factors into your development process? Um, I actually I think a lot because more and more when we pitch to, you know, the international guys, the big question is why now? Mm. You know, why do we make... Why is this relevant now? Why will your audience want to watch it? Um, and also, like you say, if we're trying to do an idea which maybe starts from a lo more local context, you know, why is that going to be appealing? So, I, and, you know, I think that's that's a crucial question to always ask yourself. Why, why, you know, why should an audience care about this particular topic now? Mm. So, with, yeah. with great ambition comes great risk. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned keeping Australia alive was a tricky road. Obviously, um, Who Gets to Stay in Australia was a very challenging production. What are some of the lessons you've learnt in the quest for scale, Ben? Uh, planning is everything. Yeah. Um, crew selection is everything. Um, I think it's all, and it's all R&D. I think the, the lessons learned are... I'll, I'll give you a great example. We followed up um, Keeping Australia Alive with Keeping Australia Safe about a year and a half later, it's like, you know, we'd seen the context in a medical sense, what did it look like in a security sense? I worked very closely with Steve Bibb on this. And, um, and, and, and at the time, you know, every day there was talk of, you know, terrorists and, you know, you know there was this fear of, um, of the, of, in the war on terror, which to me needed to be contextualised because we're in Australia and we ranked very highly as a nation in terms of our fear of ISIS, you know, and yet we're half a world away. So we, we embarked on the same project and trying to get privileged access to 30, 40 
institutions. We're talking about police, courts, the military, community welfare places, and so on. Very, very, very challenging. Everyone's a, every one of those is a deed of access. Every one of those is a contract of trust. And our mission for Steve was to deliver something that actually happened, rather than people sitting on their hands, you know, um, during that day. And uh, it was very, very challenging. But the interesting thing about that, that was that the moment that Steve commissioned it at the ABC, uh, and we call it Keeping Australia Safe, Malcolm Turnbull gave a speech and created the Home Affairs Office, and he, and he was spruiking our, our brand all year. Keeping Australia safe, keeping Australia safe, keeping Australia safe. And what I think damaged that series once we put it to air, and I'm very proud of what we achieved, it was a great achievement, was that I wish I'd put a question mark behind that phrase. Because I think probably for all, you know, we had great reviews from Graham Blundell, you know, it was a, it was a strong series where um, it was, you know, held up this idea of like, we're putting all this money into boats up in the Torres Strait to chase away fishermen, and yet every week a woman's killed by someone she loved. You know, it's this kind of, where are we putting the money? Where's the effect, you know? Um, you know, why are we in Afghanistan? All, all those questions, you know, our justice system, the bail courts, et cetera, et cetera. And I think by the time it got to air, with that name, Keeping Australia Safe, I think in the program guide, it might have printed as a, oh, well, this is gonna be a G up for the government. You know, mm -hmm. how, how good are we? Because we have these great police forces, and you know. And I now wish I'd just put a question mark on that because the thesis was supposed to be, really, you know, we're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into that shiny boat and they're chasing away one stray fisherman who wants to, you know, get this sea worm from outside of the, of, the, of the reef, where every day there's a crisis going on, yeah. and, you know, with homeless, yeah. with domestic violence, and, you know, we, we, tried to, we tried to sort of counterpoint all those things. I, I ended up calling it Keeping Australia Blurred because with all the privacy <laughs> conditions and, you know, our ability to actually honestly observe someone being arrested and a police operation, we end up blurring, you know, I secretly blurred a dog just as an act of silent protest. <laughs> no one noticed it, sorry, Steve. But I think, I think that's the lesson learned is that, and it comes down to the purpose, you know, what is the unanswered question that we're going to pose in this mm. series and what, we, what are we going to learn? But I think in terms of shooting it to the central idea, which is how healthy is our health system or, or are we, you know, you know what, what, is, what is the cost to, our, to human rights as well as to our, you know, national purse of keeping Australia safe? And are we putting that focus in the right areas or are we all looking that way or should we be looking that way? I think we probably didn't achieve as well um, as we did with Keeping Australia Alive. Well, I guess that's kind of the point of fact, is you never know quite where you're going to land. Um, any <clears throat> sort of key lessons that you've taken when you've been seeking scale or chasing an ambitious project, Justin? Um, I think for us, what it always comes down to is the fact we're trying to take on different subject matters. And we also try and recognise that within our sort of uh, production team, we don't always have the relevant expertise. Mm. And I think when we've got a certain budget and we're trying to be ambitious, it's very important for us to identify, okay, can we bring in key experts to work with us in certain areas? I mean, First Man Out was a great example where I think it's the hardest show we've ever made because we've got a huge health and safety team. We, you know, we're trying to go to remote areas. So we've had to, we really have to examine, you know, how do we create a safe environment to be able to achieve the show we want to achieve? Mm -hmm. So from a production point of view, I think it's always about really analysing, you know, what you really need to make the show, where's the best place to spend the money, and, uh, you know, to, to achieve the ambition you have. Yeah. Great. Well, on that note, um, we'll go to the last clip. Ben, this is... Um, it was a surprising clip, I think, 
Um, are you able to sort of talk us through why you? Chose yeah, I'll, it? I'll, I'll set it up and we can just throw to the clip. Mm. This is a, this is this is now getting. This is two thousand and three. It's an archive-based show, and I think we're, we're talking about scale and enabling people who don't work for big companies to sort of approach scale. Archives are a really good clue, you know. And if you, as a, you know, with every other documentary, you start with no documentary and you keep filming until you've got a documentary, and then you stop more or less, you know. With archive, you start with the entire world of archive. And it's a treasure hunt as you piece together your story. It's, it's, I find it incredibly exciting because every batch of archive that you discover, whether it be a home movie or something from a national archive, you don't know where the pellets are. Mm. So it's the Vietnam War, Russell Crowe narrating a series called The Colour of War, The Anzacs. And uh, it's about letters and diaries of people writing home for the war. The, the, there was a bit of research that, I, that was bugging me, which is out of the Australian commitment to Vietnam, I think 500 were killed. There was one civilian death amongst the Australians, and it was a, an entertainer, a young entertainer called Kathy Wayne, Kathy Warren, and she was over in the in Vietnam with one of the with one of the entertainment troops, with um, uh, you know all those others there, and she was killed in the crossfire of an American private trying to shoot his own sergeant. So something's broken out at, in a mess hall, and a fire a shot's been fired, and she got killed. So there's a story there. I had a photograph of her, and that's all I had. I didn't have enough in an archive sense to tell a story. So this production rolled on for months, and we were ordering batch loads of archive from NARA, which is the American archive, and, and it's free, it, other than research and the cost of the tape in those days. And there was a, and, and, but there was no reference to this singer, but I had, I had a batch load of new stuff, Australian troops, um, entertainers, and I was scrolling through this film, and then there was a blonde singer sitting amongst some American soldiers, pair of sunglasses. 17 seconds this film went for. She runs up on stage, she takes the mic, and then it tails out. And I matched her frame with the photograph, and it was Kathy Wayne. And her family had never seen it, no one had ever seen it. So it became a, there's a two minute clip I'm gonna show you, but the, the, the background to it is 17 seconds of gold I found in probably the second last week of the edit. Mm. That, that just because I knew her face and it struck something in me, we got to tell the story in 17 seconds, and this is the power of archive. Let's run the clip. The end of the 60s. New Zealand and Australia are now looking for a way out of Vietnam. constant stream of entertainers keep up appearances, but morale remains low. of madness are commonplace. An American soldier tries to shoot his commander. The bullet kills Australian singer Kathy Wayne by mistake. 
This is the last known film of the 19-year-old. really nicely leads me to a question from the app, um, which is, because um, I think that speaks very much to sort of ambition and, and mm. commitment to telling a story. Would you say that there is a difference between the term scale and ambition, or, or have we kind of replaced one term with another? Uh, we've replaced one term with another. Yeah. <laughs> Does everyone agree? Yeah. yeah. Scale is... Yeah. Scale scales in that context is the time you put into it, mm. you know, or the time frame of the production, but I think... I think you know scale starts with ambition. You can't have scale without mm. wanting to have scale. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, I think, as we said earlier, be careful about how you pitch scale to a broadcaster mm. because it does have a clear expectation. Yeah. But if you clearly define what that means, you know, whether it's Lillian shooting a project over 20 years or an archive scan from around the world, or whether it's you know going to exotic places, just be careful about how you define it because there is a general perception, probably 10 out of 10, mm. that it means. Yes, yeah, so be clear. Any other questions? There's no more coming through on here, but is anyone else in the room? I'm conscious there's only four minutes to go, so don't want to wrap up before questions. No. Well, I'll ask one. <laughs> um, uh, you just mentioned, Ben, um, about being clear with broadcasters. Um, Jocelyn, I'll start with you. Um, in the in the pitching development and production process, how I mean broadcasters are notorious for using nebulous terms. Uh, how how in, how much of the onus is on the producer to find clarity? Oh, I, I almost think it's 100%, 100% on the producer. Yeah, I think you know you've got to be very clear with the idea of pitching, um, and also you've got to you know set up the right expectations. I'm a great believer, and you should almost you know under promise over deliver because as soon as you mention scale and this is the biggest and the best, you know, expectations are very high. Mm. You know. You've got to try and paint a picture of what they're going to see mm. in the mm. series. Um, yeah, and sometimes if it's just words, it's not clear. Mm. Anything you can uh, support visually to show what, what you're going to deliver helps. Yeah. Mm. Managing expectations. Managing yeah. expectations. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a tendency for us to sometimes focus in on a word like scale without really talking about the things that matter because mm. it's a big catch-all phrase. So um, what would you say, stepping away from scale, what are the things that are actually important to talk about when you're developing and producing for a broadcaster? I think for me it comes down to what's best for that idea. Not every idea actually requires scale, mm. you know, it doesn't. And I think sometimes in producers have a tendency because they're trying to cut through and, and you know, get their, their project commissioned, sometimes, you know, they apply a layer to it or a filter to it, which actually is not needed. It's, you've got to go back to what the story is and what's the best way to tell that story. And sometimes it is scale and sometimes it's not. That's good advice, Deb. Oh, you, basically, to be clear what the production methodology is to, to capture the story. Um, it, you know, there's all different ways to tell a story. I think you've got to be really clear in what that storytelling is going to be. Um, because otherwise you end up in the edit and they go, oh, that's not what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so I think being really clear with your methodology. I think also as a starting point when you're devising your project, um, you know, so we will meet so many people this week who go, oh, this is a great idea, it's a great idea, but that's not nearly enough, you know. The currency mm -hmm. of ideas has mm -hmm. gone down. So it's got to be, as you're saying, why now, 
and mm. what's what's different about it. And um, I mean, Peter Mink and one of your colleagues, you know, years and years and years ago, when I was writing some fluff, some production for some project we were doing together, he said, no, 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 just let's forget about that. Just start with a fact. And I think that's a really good starting point. And and as we alluded to earlier about first contact, you know, I'll focus on for four-year-olds. If you can, if you can, sh if your premise is sheeted in a bit of data or a what if mm. or something which has a, a is grounded rather than a you know. Um, a walk into someone else's world just for the yucks, you know, mm. nurses or whatever. I think that will strengthen your pitch and that will keep give you a sort of a middle of the road for why you're doing it and that'll inform how you then do Something it. Something that's tangible. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that you can yeah. have a yeah. clear and purpose. A reason for being. Well. Yeah, and also I think what's important is, especially with so much competition now, is, you know, you've also got to convince the broadcast to prove you can deliver. Yes. You know, it's, it's the idea plus can you actually deliver that idea. Yes, and I think that's the toughest, mm. the toughest um, thing for smaller productions or producers. Have you got any advice for smaller production companies when they're trying to get stuff away? Um, come to as many of these things as you can. Get mm. as much advice as you can. Maybe bring on a consultant for a short period of time. Mm. I think you know money spent sometimes early on, mm. you know, saves you money down the track. Mm. Particularly when you get into post, that you know, it's just a whole different world. Yeah, what, I mean, what, you, what you have that the bigger production companies might not have as much of is time. Yeah. And so, um, as you say, over-deliver, you know, surprise, surprise your yeah. client or your broadcaster or, who you, or your developer by just taking it the extra mile. And so that might mean keeping it in an edit for longer, you know, getting someone in or having a trusted person who you can have come and have a first look at it yeah. and give you a steer because you can easily hang on to it. You know, <clears throat> field love is a thing. You're in the field and you film something. You go, this is mm -hmm. great. Your ed editors are great because they're your first audience. And they go, well, actually, it's not so great, yeah. you know. And, 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 you know, the smaller companies I've worked for historically in the past, they keep things in the edit and they don't, they don't put a rough cut out because sometimes that can just alarm the broadcaster. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the card that you have is time, energy yeah, and passion. commitment to, to that project. And put yourself in the viewer's seat. Always. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of time, I think we've just turned red. Okay. Um, so thank you very much to all our speakers. It's been really informative and I think you've managed to bring some focus to a, to a slightly woolly subject matter. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you to Anna Jeffries who produced the panel and thank you to AIDC. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.